Hello and welcome to Written in Uncertainty, an Elder Scrolls podcast sat firmly in the grey maybe of the series universe and proud member of the Robots Radio Podcast Network. My name is Aramithius and we're back. Thank you ever so much for your patience in waiting for me to get everything sorted to be back online with this podcast, but moving house and getting the internet all sorted has delayed things an awful lot. If you're listening to this as part of a listen back through the series there's been a huge gap in between this and the previous episodes because i just haven't been able to get online to post anything with one thing and another and it's just it's good to be back today i'm discussing one of the most talked about individuals in the elder scrolls lore someone who's been a god a mortal a general a poet a liar and possibly a whore today we're asking who is vivek I just want to say, as usual, that this is my own understanding of who Vivek is and definitely not the whole truth of the matter. Much of what Vivek has done and said makes determining the full truth entirely impossible and possibly not desirable either, so this is definitely not the final word on here. I would absolutely love to hear your own ideas and I really urge you to go and hunt out your own in terms of looking at the texts and the comments that surround this fantastic character. Just please leave a comment with whatever you found or whatever you think wherever you're listening to this or at the blog post that accompanies this podcast at writteninuncertainty.com. Just a note going forward, I will also be referencing some of Coda and quite a few unlicensed texts in this cast, so prior warning if you're bothered about precise canon. I'll be noting where the sources come from as I talk through them, so feel free to disregard anything I say that you don't think comes from a legitimate source. I'll also be linking all of the sources that I do quote in this cast in the blog post again, so please check them out and come to your own conclusions about whether they're worth considering. And if you've got anything you want to ask me or comments you'd like to make directly, please email me at writteninuncertaintypodcast at gmail.com. Also, if you want to check out the notes that I make for these episodes with more sources and more thoughts than I typically squeeze into the episodes, you can become my patron at patreon.com forward slash written in uncertainty. I also wanted to read out an email I got from John about the cast on the Battle of Red Mountain before we get into the meat of this cast, because it's partly relevant, I think. John wrote this. The warp in the west and the time wound at Slow Throat had massive impacts on Nern, from the chaotic accounts across Volenfell to Alduin's reappearance. However, the Red Moment didn't have anything like that, and considering that there were only four Mur who truly knew what happened at Red Mountain, with differing agendas, are you convinced there was actually a dragon break? Not to be a dissident conspiracy theorist, but it just reeks of the tribunal attempting to write the history to suit them. All accounts prior to this moment simply describe them as Nerevar's advisors. It isn't until Vivek's sermons that Alm Sivi's godhood is established from birth. And I know the consensus of Vivek admitting to killing Nerevar is that it's just a plot against Azura, but I don't think that's so. Also, why would he seek to kill Azura if she didn't transform them into Dunma? Too many oddities in their claims. 
I don't think the tribunal had to rewrite history because the Kaima spent decades warring with the Dwemer for blaspheming the divines and pursuing their own apotheosis. Now with their own godhood established and the ashen skin as their folly, they were hypocrites and would lose all power and rule if the Dunman knew the truth. It doesn't strike me as a dragon break, but rather a political scheme to establish power. After thousands of years, history became what they wanted. Hell, they probably even forgot what truly happened after all that time. Firstly, thank you for your email, John. It's brilliant to hear from you. I think that it's true that the Red Moment doesn't have as many seismic effects as the other Dragon Breaks, but we do have most of the cultures on Tamriel trying to reconcile the Battle of Red Mountain or include themselves in it in some way. That's what makes me think that there was a Dragon Break at that battle, but you're absolutely right that much of the stuff that we hear about the battle from the Tribunal and related organisations could be entirely fabricated. However, that doesn't explain everything, and there does feel like there's several conflicting facts that don't really have enough of an obvious beneficiary to make much of what happened entirely rubbish. It's difficult to see why some people would say what they do and what they would gain from it, basically. There are quite a few things that have an impact on Vivek particularly, most notably his godhood and conduct with regards to Nerevar that I'll get to in this podcast, and they were probably the most obvious beneficiary, but they weren't the only ones. And thank you, John, for pointing out perhaps the simplest answer to what happened at the Battle of Red Mountain that I managed to entirely pass up, that it was mostly just a pack of lies. And now on to one of the best liars in Tamriel, the warrior poet herself, Vivek. Vivek was, or maybe is, in brief, a mortal who became a god, one of the tribunal who ruled Morrowind for more than three and a half thousand years. Z was the warrior poet of the tribunal, and along with the rest of them, tapped the heart of Lorcan to become a god, in a point called the Red Moment by fans and in a few texts now. Z also potentially, probably, has Chim, a state of enlightenment within the Elder Scrolls. I will be going over some of that in this cast, but I have already done a much fuller cast on Chim itself if you want some more details on that. Go and check that out if you haven't already and want to get a handle on what that concept is and how Vivek explains it because Vivek is the biggest single source on that uh, the rest of them are a few lines here and there. As a poet however Z is also one of the biggest liars in the Elder Scrolls potentially. Here 36 lessons are some of the biggest pieces of propaganda you'll find in the whole franchise although it's not immediately obvious it's just crazy on a first read through. Exactly who Vivek is and what Z has done and how have several different answers in the Elder Scrolls and you'll get wildly different opinions on it. I remember seeing a thread a few years ago on the old Bethesda forums entitled Vivek God Chim Jerk and immediately thought all of the above. Part of that has come from how Vivek has been developed as a character, I think. Vivek's dialogue in The Elder Scrolls 3 was written by one developer, I think it was Ken Ralston, but don't quote me on that. And then Michael Kirkbride wrote the 36 lessons for the game. Those two different authors have very different voices, resulting in quite a large tonal difference in how Vivek's developed. 
and then the Elder Scrolls Online with its emphasis on the more spiritual rather than ceremonial worship of the tribunal puts yet another layer of voices on Vivek. You have spirits that seem to be aspects of Vivek or aspects of the tribunal and they speak for them in some ways that we didn't really see before. But that now means that we have many different ways to approach the character and quite what the truth is under all that is very difficult to determine. Which frankly it's entirely appropriate given that Vivek is all about duality and to a lesser degree uncertainty. There's a dual aspect of warrior and poet, male and female, which for me is key to her whole character. Vivek is a liminal being, that is something that exists in between states. Given that, I'm a little surprised that Vivek isn't explicitly a psychopomp in the Tribunal's faith. The psychopomp, for, just for, so you know, is a deity that carries souls from the land of the living to the land of the dead. So the ferryman in Greek mythology is a psychopomp and Persephone potentially in the way that she exists between the two and, and moves people between the two. Um, that sort of thing. Existing in both the place of the living and the place of the dead at once seems to be entirely in Vivek's wheelhouse because doing two things at once is just his thing. So I'm really surprised that the Tribunal Faith doesn't assign Vivek that role, but that's just my personal beef. Rather, that's expressed in Vivek's role as mastery in the tribunal to reflect that duality in a way. In the 36 lessons, the number of the master is 11, one and one. It's said in the sermons to be the idea of telling the difference between the rebel and the king, between two different types of people and being able to tell the difference. It's the observer position in the Enantiomorph, the role that holds both the rebel and the king in balance and then makes one the victor and one the vanquished. To be able to choose and decide and discern which is which requires an intimate knowledge of both and therefore mastery over them. To be able to hold both things in balance you need to be able to hold both things in their totality. This is a little at odds with Vivek's overall position in the tribunal, which is typically taken to be the rebel, the thief. Sothisil is typically the mage, which is the traditional map to the observer role. However, everything else about Vivek just screams that Z is the one in the middle, which is closer to the observer role, so I'm running with that for now. Reflective of that duality, Vivek states in his trial, which was a forum roleplay that was done with several developers on board in I think 2004, 2000 or thereabouts, but Vivek states this to quote, Vec the mortal did murder the Hortator. Vec the god did not and remains as written, and yet these two are the same being, and yet are not, save for one red moment. Vivek in this is both Vec and Vec, murderer and innocent, and they met in the liminal space that is the red moment, that between thing that is the dragon break. Or if you follow John's reasoning from earlier, Vivek could just be a lying murderer trying to cover up her own wrongdoing with flowery language and a faked metaphysical event. Which is it? That's up for us to decide in our own liminal space where it could be either. Truth, as we'll see later, is something that Vivek is not necessarily particularly invested in. As a result of that kind of metaphysical messing around or the propaganda machine, there are multiple versions of where Vivek could have come from. The 36 lessons, or at least the first 36, 
portray here as being birthed from an egg with Almalexia and Sothosil as parent figures that have a hand in creating and shaping the egg. This presents the tribunal as a whole as a thing that is self-created and Vivek in particular as something that's possibly the culmination of the tribunal, being both the youngest tribune and the one that's able to balance both mystery and mercy. This has Vivek as the egg of the tribunal that was incubated by a Necherman's wife, that is a shepherd's wife. In addition to being a humble beginning and so a kind of starry-eyed rise to fortune and fame from nothing, this is important because, as the Selective's lawcast has pointed out, the creation of this egg is deliberate and happens without the normal processes. That is to say, it's done without sexual desire, without the normal biological processes being involved, so it's an entirely ex nihilo creation, it's a creation from nothing, and so is therefore all the more divine because of that. Sermon 1 of the 36 Lessons actually says that A.M. took a Necherman's wife and then seemingly spoke Vivek into being by declaring that Z was inside her as an egg, which is one hell of a way to conceive, particularly given that A.M. is female as well. So, quite how that works, yeah. Uh, but it's very definitely a creation and a birth without desire which separates the birth from mortal concerns. It also makes the resulting entity more of a blank slate and therefore able to self-create and be without the context of having parents. This is something that several Western Hermetic traditions pick up on as well as being a key tenet in existentialist philosophy. While we are not placed into the world without a context, to act as we see fit and without the influence of those contexts is often considered to be the goal in these philosophies. To paraphrase a reply that Sartre gave to one of his students when asked a moral question, you are free, so choose, that is to say, invent. That freedom to choose uh, independent of constraints, independent of contexts, is existentialist radical freedom, and it's key to Vivek's character, which I'll get to a bit later. In terms of how Vivek rises to prominence after they're born, Z is then spotted by Nerevar as something important, either on the road to Mornhold or in Mornhold itself, and then raised up by Nerevar to be an advisor against the invading Nords. In the 36 lessons telling, Nerevar is a mercenary captain who then decides to follow Vivek, so quite who's following who is a bit uncertain in this case. We have a much more grounded version of Vivek's origins in the unlicensed text, What My Beloved Taught Me. Z describes herself there as a gutter get, a dagger lad, a necherman's son, who lives in alleyways and the streets of Mournhold. From that text, it seems like Z is talking to Nerevar about a variety of things, which is possibly where they met in this version of events. It almost reads like he's trying to chat him up in some ways. The 36 Lessons has them meeting to a degree on the way to Mournhold that's much more incidental and focused on Vivek. What My Beloved Taught Me also has Vivek as a hermaphrodite from the beginning. The line, I was born a whelp wench in my under, is in there. And there seems to be no account that we have where Vivek has a conventional gender to begin with. Whatever way it's 
fun, which in a way encapsulates Vivek's attitude, I think. Z was always meant to be everything, as Z was always both. And that's also why I'm using Z, by the way, rather than he or she. Vivek has been described as both he and she in various places. And I also want to cover all possibilities here to remember that Vivek is at that crux between possibilities. And that's very deliberate in Vivek's gendering as a hermaphrodite here. And Salmon 37 is why I said earlier that only the first 36 of the 36 lessons portray Vivek as being birthed from an egg. Sermon 37 seems to take something of a more conventional view, at least some of the time. That text presents a series of could-have-beens for Vivek, which relates Vivek's past as possibly becoming a troubadour and then dying of a fever. Or at least that's my reading of it, I could be entirely wrong there. So. How did Vivek get to the point of changing here past and manipulating time? That's a little confusing as it could be multiple things. Of course it could, it's Vivek. Along with Almalexia and Sothasil, Vivek became a god through tapping the heart of Lorcan with Kagranak's tools following the Battle of Red Mountain. That then allowed Vivek to channel the power of the heart to his own ends. It's either that power that allowed the manipulation of time or that of Chim. Vivek is one of two people we know of who could have Chim. I did a cast on the concept itself a while back, so listen to that if you want to understand more about that in itself. For now, I think it's enough to say that Chim possibly gives those who achieve it the power to reshape reality. If Vivek had it, then Z certainly could have manipulated her past so that Z was always a god and the account that we had in the 36 lessons then becomes true as the past gets rewritten. However, there's also the manipulation of the heart of Lorcan that gave Vivek his godhood. It's pretty much impossible to separate out that from the benefits of Chim. In Vivek's case, we don't know what was powering what, so we can't know for sure whether Vivek had Chim. We also have it from here that the worship of the people powered the tribunal's maintenance of the great ghost fence. So it's possible that that gave Vivek and the other triunes a power to hold up the ghost fence and possibly perform other feats. So quite what we can attribute to Chim itself in Vivek's case is an open question. However, the 36 lessons also give us the best account that we have of how to attain Chim. Despite that, we don't know precisely when Vivek would have got it. There's a line in Sermon 4 where Vivek drinks the milk of a folded bone of the earth and then, to quote, became a ruling king of the world. A lot of the descriptions in the 36 lessons link being a ruling king to attaining Chim, so it's possible that that happened here. However, the common consensus seems to be that it happened later during an event called the Pomegranate Banquet in Sermon 14. This is because Molag Bal actually says Chim at that point in the text, which is one of only two times the word comes up in the 36 lessons. I think there are two things going on here. The first of those is possibly that Vivek is acknowledging his divinity rather than Chim in Sermon 4. There's a reference to the heartbone in Sermon 11, which feels like a clear reference to Lokhan's heart. If the heart can be considered a bone, then folding it and drinking its milk could be a very oblique reference to the use of Kagranak's tools on the heart. 
Given that, it feels like Baal may have helped Vivek attain Chim during the Pomegranate Banquet in Sermon 14. And yes, this is the bit where we get to talk about all that spearbiting. This kind of actually does fit because Chim, according to Vex's teaching, is, to quote, to transcend mortal boundaries. In order to learn how to move beyond limitation, you first need to be limited. So Vivek was willing to submit to the domination of Baal in order to learn how to move beyond limits that were imposed on him. In so doing, Z possibly attains Chim. This also has some implications about why worship the Daedra, but I think that probably deserves its own podcast, as that's a question that I see around a lot, and there's a f- several different answers you can give there, so I'll leave that for another day. The 36 lessons, if they are written by Vivek, is possibly a manual on how to attain Chim if you listen to various parts of the community. Uh, There are several lessons of ruling kings scattered throughout the books, but as usual, I'm not 100% convinced that these are necessarily to do with Chim. The lessons of ruling kings that the 36 lessons does give don't seem to necessarily marry up with Vivek's own actions, for starters. They do, however, contain a few points relating to the Enantiomorph and the Godhead, which, so far as we know, are necessary parts in attaining Chim, so it's likely that it's a manual in some ways, but it's a little difficult to tease out. It's certainly not their only purpose. There are elements in the lessons that imply that Vivek wrote them for the Nereverine. There are quite a few references in there to hint at the lessons being a warning and an instruction manual for what Vivek is doing with the Nereverine, most notably these passages in Sermon 13, to quote. The ruling king is to stand against me and then before me. He is to learn from my punishment. I will mark him to know. He is to come as male or female. I am the form he must acquire. And this. If there is to be an end, I must be removed. The ruling king must know this and I will test him. I will murder him time and again until he knows this. The first of these is a reference to choosing the player character's gender at character creation, as well as a nod to Vivek's own dual sexual nature. The second point, of murdering the ruling king again and again, is a reference to the failed incarnates in my opinion. Vivek and the Ordinators have been killing all of the Nereverines to make sure that the Nereverine eventually knows that Vivek must be removed, it's to make them automatically enemies. Strictly speaking, this implies that the Nereverine that is the player character in the Elder Scrolls 3 is the same soul as Peakstar, Konun, Chalada and the rest, having learned their lesson, so to speak. Or it's maybe just a nod to the idea of dying again and again in the game until you complete the main quest. The first of these is a a little tricky, as it means there was literal reincarnation going on, which I'm not sure is strictly a thing in the Elder Scrolls. Where things are brought back, so to speak, it's typically through the process of mantling rather than reincarnation. Mantling, in brief, is where you imitate the actions of a thing to the extent that the universe can't tell the difference between you. There are some hints that something like more traditional reincarnation is possible, but rather than go down that rabbit hole, I will leave you with this quote from Michael Kirkbride on the matter, originally posted on the Bethesda forums in 2005 and speaking as New Hatter. To quote, 
Mantling and Incarnation are separate roads. Do not mistake this. The latter is built from the cobbles of Drawbone Destiny. The former walk like them until they must walk like you. And now I've dropped that little piece on you, I'll leave you to think on what the cobbles of Drawbone Destiny could be and leave it until we can have a whole podcast on the nature of souls in the Elder Scrolls. So, as having established that Vivek has been killing Nerevar over and over until they become precisely what they need to be, I think it's probably time we talked about Vivek and Nerevar a bit more explicitly. We don't know precisely how Vivek and Nerevar met. As I mentioned earlier, we have the meeting on the road to Mournhold in the 36 Lessons, but what we know of Nerevar's history as a war leader in House Inderil, I think that makes that quite unlikely. And why would a noble and a general be serving as a caravan guard? I don't imagine that House Inderil would promote a mere mercenary quite as high as Nerevar got. The Selective's Lawcast did a fantastic podcast on Vivek a while back with a good number of perspectives on how Vivek is likely to have got Nerevar's attention. Check that out for a good number of possibilities. Uh, the other likely possibility from the text that we have, which was what my beloved taught me, it seems to be that Vivek is some sort of gutter snipe come whore that strikes up a conversation with Nerevar. From there we can possibly assume they strike up a relationship of some sort, either friendship or possibly sexual, and from there Vivek becomes an advisor to Nerevar. If that's true, it's likely that Vivek met the other members of the tribunal as part of Nerevar's court. They were members of Chima nobility already, and likely already a part of what would become the First Council. Although, in fairness, that does contradict some things that have been said about Sophocil, whereas Sothasil was the last survivor of House Sotha, who was rescued from the ruins of Old Sotha by Vivek himself, so, and then brought under Vivek's wing. So that would place Sothasil as being the most recent or the youngest tribune you know, from that perspective. But the timelines here are a little fuzzy, and Vivek, frankly, has a younger brother complex going on and feeling like. Z needs to make up for something, which seems to fit a whole lot better with his character as far as I'm concerned. Vivek's whole attitude towards Nerevar is incredibly interesting though. Z seems ambivalent about the whole thing. On the one hand, Nerevar is a treasured friend to Vivek, who Vivek seems to regret killing. On the other, Nerevar is someone who is disposable and part of the grand plan that Vivek had for the Kaima slash Dunma. I think that both of these are likely true, given that Vivek in both The Elder Scrolls Online and in Morrowind seems to be quite heavy with regret, but Z did it anyway. There's a sense of dreadful purpose in some ways with Vivek, that his attitudes to Nerevar encapsulates better than anything else, and it also explains why we have the hidden message in the sermons that was potentially Vivek's own guilty conscience saying, I did it, I killed Nerevar. But I think this is definitely something that Vivek did with a purpose. I think it's something that Vivek certainly had in mind for the people that he was then going to lead. In particular, there's this quote from Sermon 35. Later, and by that I mean much, much later, 
my reign will be seen as an act of the highest love, which is a return from the astral destiny and the marriages between. By that, I mean the catastrophes, which will come from all five corners. This feels like Vivek is anticipating either leading here people through a range of catastrophes, or that Z will cause them. I think, given the red year, it may well be the latter. There's also a bit more to that quote that I think links this element to the Dune series, in particular the book God Emperor of Dune. In that book, Emperor Leto II had planned a golden path for humanity, which resulted in a millennia-long theocratic rule across the galaxy, which stagnated and centralised galactic culture to the point where it shattered and the remnants of a rejuvenated humanity were then scattered among the stars. To me, this feels very like the Tribunal and Morrowind. The Tribunal ruled a theocratic nation for thousands of years, which was then scattered across Tamriel by a cataclysm following the death or disappearance of the Tribunal in the Red Year. Part of the Dune story later concerns the return of some of those scattered humans to those that stayed behind, which could be a return from astral destiny. I may be reading a bit too much into that, but I think that Vivek intentionally left Lyrock to fall and destroy Vivek City in order to make here people ready for a future without the tribunal or potentially for landfall, and we're going to go down a bit of a rabbit hole now, so bear with me. In Michael Kirkbride's Coda, the Numidium returns in the 9th century of the 5th era and destroys much of Nern in an event called Landfall. The Dunma are one of two races that we know survived the event on a moon colony, and then we see the protagonist in Coda, Jubal Lunsul, who later marries Vivek and produces the Amaranth as a baby with him. I think it's possible that Vivek was preparing for those catastrophes by intentionally making them happen. Remember that as part of the armistice with the Empire, Vivek gives Tiber the Numidium. I think it's possible that Vivek gave the Numidium knowing it would be reactivated and that it would ultimately cause landfall, that the suffering and extinction of many on Nern was seen by Vivek as a prerequisite for bringing about the Amaranth, which is another kettle of fish that I don't want to get into right this second. I have done a previous cast on the Amaranth itself, if you want to check that out, please go back and check that. I will give some, some slight definitions of it here, but not go into the whole thing. But the way that Vivek essentially orchestrated this whole thing, as well as being the solution himself by marrying Jubal, kind of implies that Vivek was effectively grooming Jubal for the purpose of being the saviour of Nern or of Mundus, and has some rather interesting implications for Vivek's relationship with Nerevar. Jubal is considered by some fans to effectively be a Nereverine because he takes similar steps to the Nereverine in The Elder Scrolls 3 over the course of Coda's storyline. This does actually include wanting to be killed by Vivek. Muck Kirkbride has hinted that Vivek was also Halalu here in Coda, here being a huge clue as far as that goes, and in Coda's narrative, Halalu here tries to kill Jubal. 
If you want to check out my thoughts on Coda in general, which goes over some of this, please check out my previous cast on that topic. But what's important here is that if Jubal is a Nereverine, then it's possible that Vivek engineered the whole thing of the Nereverine as a redemption engine for Tamriel. Or maybe that's giving Vivek far too much credit. It's also possible that if Jubal is a Nereverine, that Vivek is still desperately trying to make up for killing Nerevar even several eras later. But that's a problem with Vivek. Her actions can be spun so many different ways, and with the entire temple basically endeavouring to make her look good, it's very difficult to see what the truth is. This has often been in spite of very real evidence that Vivek is a sinister individual who has people murdered. This includes Nerevar, but it's also a general perception. And the way that Vivek ruled as part of the tribunal seems to actively embrace this underhand, sinister nature as well as being something that's popular and beneficial and benevolent and all this, that and the other. To quote from the book Vivek and Mephala, The Dunma do not envision Lord Vivek as a creature of murder, sex and secrets. Rather, they conceive of Lord Vivek as a benevolent king, guardian warrior, poet artist. But at the same time, unconsciously, they accept the notion of darker hidden currents beneath Vivek's benevolent aspects. For example, one of the most striking persistent myths associated with Vivek is the story that Vivek conspired with his co-rulers Almalexia and Sothisil in the murder of Lord Nerevar, the greatest of Dunmer heroes and generals. The story is derived from Ashland oral tradition and is flatly contradicted by all temple traditions. Nonetheless, the tale is firmly established in the Dunmer imagination, as if to say, of course Vivek would never have conspired to murder Lord Nerevar, but it happened so long ago. Who can know the truth? This brings us back to duality again, and whether Vivek did or did not murder Nerevar. Vivek can never provide one answer or the other, but instead offers both as a solution. This is reflective of her anticipation in Mifala, but also in her attitude to truth. The lessons repeatedly present certainty as a bad thing, and truth as a problem. Well, not necessarily a problem as such, but a blunt weapon. We have part of the Numidium to quote, destroyed in the manner of truth by a great hammering in Sermon 36. And Sermon 21 states, truth is like my husband instructed to smash, filled with procedure and noise, hammering, weighty, heaviness made schematic, lessons learned only by a mace. In contrast, Vivek consistently refers to both his self and what the Nereverine must become as a letter written in uncertainty, that in-between state which is not necessarily true or untrue. It's also down to her nature as a poet who, to quote a phrase, uses lies to tell the truth. The truth is therefore a tool to achieve Vivek's goals, but Z is happy to use it so long as it does something for her. We also have this statement about Vivek from Sothisil, which I think possibly sheds some light on Vivek's motives as to why Z does what Z does. Vivek craves radical freedom, the death of all limits and restrictions. He wishes to be all things at all times, every race, every gender, every hero, both divine and finite, but in the end he can only be Vivek. 
The notion of radical freedom is what allows the choice in existentialism that we talked about earlier. The idea that it's only yourself holding you back from throwing yourself off a cliff or running naked through the Arctic. You could really do both of those if you really wanted to. And the realisation that a person can be and do many things but does not approach many of those things for reasons that they barely acknowledge is one of the core parts of existentialism. Vivek wanting to do and be everything speaks to a very similar way of expressing this, particularly when we think about the amaranth that is becoming the seed of a new universe. Being a whole universe in itself is in a way expressing multiple and potentially infinite possibilities. In one of the quotes that's used to describe Amaranth, MK actually described the one that achieves it as one that, to quote, wails knowing free will, which is that radical freedom. Vivek craves that and thereby potentially craves the Amaranth. The New Whirling School has also pointed out that Sermon 18 is where Vivek realises her fundamental limits and nature, as well as actively discouraging others to follow in her footsteps. I've seen several people say that this is when Z realises that Z cannot obtain Amaranth on her own. Although, if we track the real-world development of Vivek, I'm sure I remember seeing a comment by Kirkbride somewhere that he didn't have a clear conception of the Amaranth when he wrote the 36 lessons, so I'm not sure that this is Amaranth as such, but rather is an expression of the idea of Dharma, that a person or thing needs to follow that what they were destined to be. Vivek needs to be Vivek and do what Vivek does rather than what others can do, which is possible for those with radical freedom. And it's also potentially why Vivek is trying to discourage others from following what Z has done explicitly in Sermon 18, because Z realises that Z has her own path, must walk it alone, and so must everyone else. Vivek's teaching speaks out this in relation to the attitude of how ancestor worship can lead towards the Amaranth. Not all of this quote is immediately relevant to Vivek's attitude to truth, but I think it provides some context in the closing remarks from it, which certainly are. The full quote is, the arbitrary and the motivated in regarding one's divine ancestors, ignoring a manifest concern for belief in them as us. Instead, we concern ourselves with intensity and its relationship with action, valorizing little narratives and proliferation of narratives in our native cultures to the point that there is no perch from extraneous content. Pure subjectivity is no longer possible. Instead, it becomes akin to sensory deprivation. Yet without the fear, for we sense things that remind us of the dawn, the sacrifice into the stabilizing bones, new-built towers with broken intentions, and first metals gone blue from exposure to the long sun. The quest towards the er-you for certainty and foundations is not innocent. However, it is an honest vindication for truth and superhuman ideals, which means that it should be regarded as such by our own sense of fault. We made this, we dreamed this, we made it viable by voting with our seductions, we will live again to show our genuine applause. Now there's a lot to unpack there and I'm not going to go through all of it, but in this passage Vivek is essentially claiming that one's cultural context impinges on the self heavily, to the point where the self is not really the self. One cannot be purely subjective, but instead 
the self is an aggregation of the little narratives or the little things and ways of doing stuff that cultures do. And this means that when we want our own truth, we are excising the very things that we're made of. If we're wanting to get to what's us and the way that we think independent of everything, we need to cut off everything that we've been made of and so that nothing is left, nothing to navigate by, which then results in something like sensory deprivation. So in that way, truth and the true nature of the self potentially lead to amaranth, I think. Another element of that radical freedom could potentially also be that Vivek wants to be a prisoner, wants to be a player character. They can be anything and do anything within the cosmos of the Elder Scrolls. They have been limited and they have then gone beyond the limits, which allows them to write the next Elder Scroll to determine how the next event is going to go. But Vivek can only be Vivek, not a new universe, not one that moves beyond it. One that contains multiple elements of things, sure, but that Vivek cannot contain them all to the extent of being a totality. For that, Z needs Jubal. But I now want to talk a bit more about a totality that Vivek is in himself, male and female. It's a bit that fans tend to get a little excited about, because it basically involves a lot of dick waving. Yes, we are going to talk about Muatra. Muatra is Vivek's spear, and also a representation of his sexual organs. Most people associate it with Vivek's penis, but it's not just that. The name that it's given should be an indication too. Muatra is called Milk Taker, and if anything, to get a little graphic, a penis would be a milk giver. Muatra is a representation of Vivek as a hermaphrodite, and as such takes milk as well, performing the role of receptacle, which is the vagina, uterus and womb. This construction is very similar to the Hindu idea of Yoni and Linga, the female and male representations of Shiva and Shakti, and how they link together. Michael Kirkbride has noted Shiva in particular as a large inspiration for how he sees Vivek, and I think that this is one of those big areas where Shiva had an influence. Shiva and Shakti's merging symbolises union and recreation, as well as being symbols of those gods themselves. That's the portrayal of two beings in constant unity, which is what Vivek represents in one being, that Z represents both male and female, both Vek and Mephala, both god and mortal. There's all sorts of coexisting dualities and contradictions within Vivek and the way of presenting both male and female is one of the more conventional if you like because that's already been done in world religions. I've also seen Muatra the spear presented as a dancing pole against which female sexuality is then displayed. I'm not 100% sure on that one but it is one way of making the spear symbol less immediately phallic. Muatra may also represent part of Vivek's power as a poet, that is seduction. Seducing with words is something that poets do, and something that can be done to anyone by anyone, hence Muatra being both male and female in its application. It could also be an expression of a repressed past of Vivek's. Muatra is an anagram of trauma after all. 
it also doesn't receive its name until after Vivek's encounter with Moloch Baal in Sermon 14. Vivek already has a spear at the start of that sermon, but it's just not named. It's only after Vivek has been with the King of Rape that it gets called Muatra. I've seen several people claim that Vivek was potentially traumatised as a child, which is why Z ran away to Mordhold and has no father in the 36 lessons. However, given what we talked about earlier, it sounds like there was an element of willingness to submit to Baal for her own reasons. And so either it's unlikely that Vivek was abused as a child, although having said that, that idea of being headless, which Vivek talks about in Sermon 14, is a bit reminiscent of how people who've suffered abuse recount their abuse or their experience of being part of that abuse, that they're not really present, they're not really there, it's happening to someone else. And that distancing is potentially represented in Vivek's headlessness in the event of Vivek and Baal coming together. The 36 Lessons also mentions that Vivek and Morlag Baal had children. Exactly what they are and what they represent is uncertain. I'm not sure that there's any one way of looking at them. I've certainly seen several attempts throughout the course of the years of the fandom looking at the 36 Lessons. Some think that they wind up as Daedric Demi-Princes, but I don't have too much truck with that, as they don't swack much like Daedra and Sermon 18 lists Vivek as one of her own children. Vivek slays one of her own children by realising her own limitations and writing her book of hours. So, unless Vivek is a Daedra, I don't think that the children can be Daedric. I've also heard it said that the children are elements of Vivek's own personality that Z was shedding in the process of becoming a deity. One of them is explicitly called out as being Vivek herself, as I said, and that of course assumes that Vivek became a god by way of something other than simple meddling with a dead god's heart, but it's at least a metaphorical possibility or a goal that Vivek set for herself. I also have a pet theory that the destruction of Vivek and Baal's children is a metaphor for the tribunal's reshaping of Dunma culture as a whole. Uh, I get there by way of numbers. Molag Baal and Vivek have nine children, or at least there are nine monsters that Vivek explicitly hunts down and kills. The Anticipations and the House of Troubles represent seven Daedra. If you add the nine children and the seven Daedra, that makes 16, the total number of Daedra princes, not counting the weirdness of Jigalag. I think that the killing of the children, in inverted commas, is possibly a metaphor for Vivek reshaping Chimeri Dunmeri society into something that Z wants, getting rid of any worship of Sanguine, Vermina, and the rest of them that aren't going to be useful to Vivek's ideal society. Vivek does seem to have quite a dismissive opinion of gods in general. Here, dialogue in The Elder Scrolls 3 says that, quote, I still see no compelling reason to worship any of the Aedra or Daedra. This would certainly go some way to explain Vivek's actions during her trial, where Vivek has Azura summoned and then abused in order to exact some form of revenge for what she did to his people. 
Z does seem to have an ambivalent relationship with Sithis, at least if Z is the author of the book Sithis, which references the sermons and talks about Sithis in very similar ways to the sermon's language. It seems to value Sithis as a thing that shapes the universe, that brings great benefits and is praiseworthy, but not necessarily something to be worshipped. In that way, I think that Vivek may be able to look to Sithis as some kind of greater truth beyond the tribunal's faith. When we look at Sothisil, which is coming soon, they aren't part of the tribunal in how they're seen by their worshippers in the Clockwork City. It's almost monolatristic, and so it's possible that Vivek's worship as distinct from the tribunal's worship in general, had more of a leaning towards Sithis and destruction and that sort of thing, that this is elements of a Beckian form of worship rather than tribunal as such. And Sermon 21 of the 36 Lessons declares that the only name of God is I, the self that can then become the Amaranth. We don't know for sure that this is Vivek's precise outlook, but it would fit with the metaphysics that Vivek seems to espouse. It's also quite common that Vivek gets called selfish, and potentially with reason in some ways. Vivek did clearly break here oath to Nerevar, and the tribunal temple was an artificial construction created around the worship of the tribunal, which potentially gave here quite a decent life. The temple certainly puts rather too rosy a picture on what Vivek has done, but I'm not sure that we can see through that enough to get to her motives. Z has striven for self-transformation in whatever Z has done, and in the actions against Nerevar, all accounts consider Vivek to have goaded Nerevar to go to war with the Dwemer. However, we have multiple accounts of her regret of the act of killing Nerevar, and Z also says Z regrets breaking her oath as well. If we can take that at face value, it's likely that Vivek is not simply power crazed, but has an ends justifies the means outlook. This is especially prominent if Coda is taken into account, as Vivek at the very least manipulated Jubal into helping here, and is also possibly responsible for setting Numidium's return in motion through offering the bits of the golem to Tiber Septim. And that's about all I have to say about Vivek, or at least in this time frame. There's tons more I could go into, but I didn't want to spend however long researching this thing and never get it out. Z is one of the most enigmatic characters in the Elder Scrolls, and several people before me have put some fantastic thought pieces together on her nature, goals, and intentions, as well as looking at here through several different lenses. I'd urge you to have a poke around the old Bethesda forums, the TES Law subreddit, and elsewhere to get some more fantastic perspectives on how Vivek can be perceived. Z may have been a git, but I can't escape the thought that Z was a git with a plan that we can only really see the half of, and so can't really judge here on the same kind of standards that we would judge other people. If you have a perspective on this, please let me know either by email or on the Written in Uncertainty Discord, and the email is writteninuncertaintypodcast at gmail.com. 
And if you like what you're hearing, please leave a rating wherever you're listening. You can also support the show on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash written in uncertainty. Patrons get access to all my content a few days early, as well as exclusive access to the notes I make for each episode. And you can also leave me a tip at Kofi by going to kofi.com forward slash aramithius. That's ko-fi.com forward slash aramithius and drop a tip in the jar. And if you want some other great stuff to listen to, check out the other Robots Radio Network podcasts out there. We've had some great recent additions to the network, and I can recommend checking out the Elder Scrolls Lorecast in particular if you want to go over some of the foundations of the lore. Before we go this week, I just wanted to say a thank you to Cyfrey, Rosalie and Goldenhand, who have become my latest patrons in spite of the absence of this podcast for several weeks. Thank you so much for your support, all of you. I hope you've been enjoying the access to the notes that I've been making for this show. And if you want to see all of those and get access to my content early, again, head to patreon.com forward slash written uncertainty. I've also had a whole bunch of reviews over the last few weeks that I wanted to call out briefly. Uh, thanks to Urban Myth, Seb, and lots of numbers, Ken4656, and Lord Marksman for your kind words. I'm really glad that I can help you all get to grips with the Elder Scrolls lore in a bit more depth. We've also had a few new additions to the Robots Radio Network recently. The DL is a weekly gaming news show. They did some fantastic coverage of E3 and all the goings on there. I thoroughly recommend checking them out. We also have Chad, a Fallout 76 story, which is an audio drama that explores the question of what would have happened if you were sealed in a vault with your school bully for most of your life and had to live with them for the good of the community. It's very well written and very well acted and has Wes Johnson's stamp of approval on Twitter of all things. The network host, Tom, has started up another podcast called Myth. He now runs six podcasts, I think, and probably doesn't sleep. But anyway, Myth tells various stories from real world mythologies and explores how they all connect, what they mean and how we relate to them. It's on hold for the moment, but I'm very interested to see what Tom goes out with when he picks this up again. The network is also running the Robots Roundtable, which is where whatever Robots Radio hosts are available get together to discuss news and some other things that they want to talk through with the various hosts that are all part of the network. And lastly, we also have the Destiny Show podcast, which come on board lately, which talks about the weekly news and development of the Destiny series of games. If you're interested in that universe, be sure to check it out. And that's all for this week. I'm really glad to be back into the swing of things, and so sorry again for the long break. Next week, we'll be resuming our look at the monomyth, where we'll be diving into the Cyrodiilic telling of that tale, Shazar's Song. Until then, this podcast remains a letter written in uncertainty. You've been listening to Written in Uncertainty, a podcast written and presented by Aramithius, with some kind editorial help from Cyfree. The music for this podcast has been kindly provided by Jan Glembotsky and Jeremy Saul. Check out Jan's work at SoundCloud under Songs from the Lost Land, and Jeremy's Northern Diaries is available for purchase and on YouTube. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time. should introduce myself. Um, I'm Corin Black, a humble half-demon, 
And folks around Baltimore call me the Devil's Runt. Here we go, finally moving again. How do you feel about methamphetamines? You know, devil's blood don't make you a devil. Under the Shroud, fantasy, noir, and horror from Baltimore's sin-soaked streets. Find creator Ian Humphrey on Twitter at FictionalIan. Hi, I'm Sebastian Azaro, and I'm inviting you to the Hidden Pixels podcast, a show exploring those gaming stories you might have missed on your first playthrough. Whether it's a side character's dark past or a small event that changed the entire fictional universe, we want to explore with gamers and story lovers alike. So join us every two weeks for the Hidden Pixels podcast. And if you like what you heard, subscribe and leave us a review. We appreciate all of your feedback and we can't wait to share these stories with you. Thanks. Rated M for Mature. Because we don't believe in scripted advertisements, we're going to do this raw. I'm regretting this decision. No, you're not. This is the DL Weekly Gaming News. There's nothing to regret here because it's your source for everything in the gaming world. Every week, we bring it to you unscripted, unfiltered. That's why it's rated M for Mature, right, Brenna? Among many, many other reasons. I am one of your hosts, Jameson. And as he already said, I am Brenna, the other glorious part to this quality podcast. You can find us every week wherever you listen to your podcasts at DL Gaming News. And you can also find us on Instagram and Twitter if you want some gaming news in your social media feed every day at DL Gaming News. And uh, you can find us individually if you really, really, truly want to see our faces. I am at DL underscore Mother Goose. And I'm at DL Jameson. And this was an advertisement. Go fuck yourselves. <laughs>